You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. We are pausing in our series of Luke. We are kind of marching through things. We got to Luke 16, but we're really continuing the series. We're just going back to Luke 1 and 2 to do a special Advent series over those few weeks leading up to Christmas. And you may be like, I have no idea what the word Advent means. And the word Advent means arrival. We are celebrating, learning, reflecting upon the arrival of Jesus as a baby 2,000 years ago, but also his arrival in our hearts today, and also looking forward to his second coming, his return, the final arrival of God. And we celebrate all this to prepare our hearts not to do Christmas as the world, where it's just about kind of throwing around some gifts and garland. But for us to really worship Jesus and say, we give gifts because Jesus is the great gift. It's to make our hearts new. And on the wall, you'll see various portraits of Mary. We decided in this Advent to look at Luke 1 and 2 through the eyes of Mary to see Jesus as the real person he was. And we asked visual artists throughout our church in different mediums to help us be there with Jesus by seeing Mary as a real person. So I invite you, take your time, look, reflect. Let God work in you through the work of your fellow citizens and come to the artist talk right after service today. And we focus on these themes in Advent, hope, joy, peace, and love, because your faith is like a single cord between you and God. And the themes of faith, joy, peace, and love are like other cords wrapping around, forming a thicker and thicker rope of your experience with God. So as we think on these themes, and today is joy, think about your relationship with God and joy, and let it start to thicken your faith that you start to say, this is a part of my relationship with God. And Joel Park did a wonderful job last week in Luke 1, looking at hope. And today we're diving into joy as Jesus is the one who gives us true joy. Look at verse 25 with me. Now there was a man in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's the capital of Israel, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and he was devout. This guy loved God. And what was he doing? He was waiting for the consolation, the comfort, the salvation of Israel. And it says the Holy Spirit was upon him, that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. He would see that consolation before he died somehow, some way. And he came into the spirit into the temple. I don't know what he's doing, but he dropped it and came into the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, that is to offer a sacrifice, the scripture told us they only had money for two pigeons. You're supposed to offer a whole goat in Leviticus 12 on the 33rd day of your first child's birth, your male child's birth but includes that little note to let you know this is a very ordinary family. Because Leviticus 12 makes a provision if you can't afford a goat, just do two pigeons, which costs almost nothing in the ancient world. Mary and Joseph are like you and I. They're not a rich family on TV. They're people in the neighborhood coming to worship God. 
And he took him, took Jesus out of their arms into his arms, and Simeon blessed God and said, now, you might think like, what's this temple like? Well, it's like Pepper Place on a Saturday. It's packed. People are selling everything. People are there for a wide variety of reasons. And Simeon just grabs a 33-day-old baby out of the mother's arms and lifts him high like Simba and starts singing with joy. To, and, and we see that to receive Jesus is true joy. The reason Mary's cool with all this A, a lot of strange things have happened with this baby. And B, Simeon's joy is so overbearing that she's like, I guess this is what's next. I guess this is happening. Simeon's been waiting. I don't know. Looks like about his whole life for the consolation, the comforting of the downtrodden people of his nation. That God's people, they've been conquered and ruled over. They have Roman overlords now. They have terrible rulers. They have, rulers. They have religious leaders who, who are terrible as too. And Simeon has been begging and crying out to God. And God gave him a special promise, says, you're gonna see it. You're not gonna miss it. I don't know if he knows what that would be, but suddenly in the spirit, he knows that that consolation is a baby. And it's Jesus. Not just that he cries, not just that he's a baby, but one day he'll grow up, die, and save us all. And that will be the great comfort to Israel. But it's also a comfort for the entire world. And it's a joy. When you think of Jesus, the proper response to Jesus, it's demonstrated over and over in Luke 1 and 2. Everyone jumps for joy. The angels are overjoyed in every scene. Remember, Elizabeth is pumped. John the Baptist as a baby in the womb is like jumping around. Mary is, you know, she has a couple questions, but they're faithful questions. And then she's singing too. Zachariah and Joseph, the boys are a little slower, but they get there. They are overjoyed and so are the shepherds and so are the wise men marching in. That the response is this crazy joy that God is coming true on his promises that everything in the Old Testament is happening now. And Simeon and Anna rejoice because of it. Look what Simeon says. He says, he took him up in his arms and blessed God saying, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He's ready to die. I don't know if he's sick. I don't, we're not told his age like we're told Anna's. This is a man who had his promised answered and is ready to go. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. Simeon praises God because God has been true according to his word. Salvation is here. But his arrival means joy for you and I too, because it's not just salvation for the Jews, but salvation for the Gentiles, aka us, all the people of a non-Jewish heritage, that this salvation is starting in Israel, but it's not staying in Israel, that it's come all the way across culturally through the centuries to this basement. It is reason for rejoicing and rejoicing further. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, we're given this amazing truth. Look with me what it says. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God and for his glory. Look what this means. Because you're like, okay, 
this Jewish guy got all the promises to Israel. You know, they're coming true in Jesus. Well, Corinthians tells us right here that every single promise you've ever read in your life, in the Bible, in the Old Testament to Israel, doesn't matter where it is. They all are yes in Jesus. That he is the final and the full fulfillment. Any material promise, there's a better promise given in Jesus. Jesus is better than stuff. Jesus is better than land. Jesus is better than whatever promise you read. They all are yes in Jesus, both final and full. So when you hear about Jesus, when you read about Jesus, when you sing about Jesus, the proper response is joy. Everything God said is actually true. And Jesus is the proof. And look what they say. Mary responds, verse 33, and Mary and Joseph. It says, and his father and his mother marvel at what was being said about him. And isn't joy what we all want? Just deep down, what motivates you to do this sort of work or, or get this money or, or wake up in the morning or, or do this? What do you base most of your decisions on? It's probably how to maximize your joy or try to find joy or, or whatever else. Emily St. John Mandel, she wrote a bestseller called Station Eleven pretty recently. It's been turned into a show In kind of the core of the book, she says this, that survival is insufficient. It's an apocalyptical novel to where the people find out that surviving is not enough for the human heart. Just to keep beating isn't enough. That we were actually built for something else. That we were actually built and we long for joy. It's enshrined in our Declaration of Independence. From 1776, it says, for the pursuit of happiness was one of the reasons we go to war. A psychologist would sit you down and say, well, it's about the search for significance. If you could just find that, you'd have joy. And we see it in everyone you've ever met. Everyone we've ever met is somewhere on this mountain of chasing joy. Some people are climbing the mountain and they're busy and they're getting sweaty as they're going up. They're chasing success, love, a relationship, status, approval, money, whatever they think will bring them joy at the top. And you might meet these people, these kind of climbers, social climbers, work climbers, and you just think, man, they're just really goal-driven. But they're not really goal-driven. They're joy-driven. They think if they get to the top, they'll be happy. The climbers keep climbing because they believe joy is actually within their reach if they work hard enough and long enough. Maybe you're like, oh, that's me. Some people you meet, maybe a crowd that's a little older, they gave up climbing a long time ago. They're still on the mountain, but they just took a seat. And their new role is to mock everyone who still climbs. That at some point they said, it's impossible, I can't get up, or, 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 or it's too hard, or, or whatever it is. Because life on the mountain, to their point, is hard. It's hard when others get promoted over you. It's hard when your friend from high school makes more money than you. 
It's hard when people are more popular than you. It's hard when people age more gracefully than you. It's hard when people seemingly have a great marriage and smart, beautiful, athletic kids or have vacations that just feel like they're in your face all of a sudden. But remember, when we're comparing, we're actually competing. And when you compete, someone has to win and someone has to lose. If you feel like you're winning at whatever you're comparing, you're inflated with pride. If you feel like you're losing, you're deflated and feel lost. Mockers claim they've given up the climb, but their new goal, their new joy is just trying to take everyone else down a peg in the name of cynicism. Cynicism is the absence of hope and the belief that nothing can change. And when cynicism sits down in a relationship with your work, with your spouse, with your friend, with your family, it will rot that relationship to its very core. To believe they can't change or they won't change and you can't either means the relationship's already over. And last, you meet people that got to the top of the mountain. They got to the top of the mountain of joy. They got the medal. They won the national championship. They became partner or CEO or business owner, or, or they got married or whatever the goal was. They actually get there and they look around and they get disappointed and hopeless all over again. Because if you get to the top of this mountain you've built of true joy, only to find a false and fleeting joy, you're crushed. You're disillusioned. And you realize the false joy, what you've been chasing, it's a mist. You know how we see mists on mountaintops? You can see them on Mount Ruffner here. You can see them anywhere. But if you actually go up the mountain, you realize the mist, it, it, it escapes your grasp. It looks like it's there, but it's not there. And we see it all the time. It's what sells in the world. Whether it's a beauty or billionaires or famous, they're selling a misty life to you. But when you read their biographies or maybe the tabloids, depending how quickly it comes, you realize their hearts and hands were grasping at mist too. False joy is fleeting. And a race up the mountain is always chasing a false joy. But church, we have, church, we have a better truth. The truth is joy is not found on a peak. But joy is found in a person, and his name is Jesus, and I will prove it to you. I want you to listen to Jesus' promise in John 15. Oh, the mountain I just described, you got enough life experience to know that's true. Would you trust Jesus that his words are true? Look at John 15. It says, as my father has loved me, so I have loved you. Think about that a second. The perfect love that God the Father has for God the Son, Jesus turns around and loves you with a love of the same power, intensity, purity, and quality. The finest, strongest, most intoxicating love in the universe. Jesus says, that's what I love you with. It's not secondary love, it's love defined. That's what I've given you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Abide is fancy for dwell, live, enjoy. So if you abide in this love, this love given through Christ, and if you do that by obeying God's commands, listening, following, obeying what he says, we don't follow, Christ doesn't follow us around, we follow him around. Look what happens. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Jesus is saying, true joy is found in his love. If you abide in Jesus's love, he will give you the joy of God, my joy, and look what happens. And that your joy may be full. That when Jesus gives you his joy by abiding in his love, it becomes your joy. And not only that, it becomes full. You were made for more than a mist. You were made for the magnificent love of God that will result in the fullness of joy in your heart. That is the promise of Jesus. He says, there is no mountain to climb. There's only me to come to. There is no backpack with the right supplies. Instead, I have done the work and that you can find joy in me. It's not false joy. It's not fleeting joy. True joy is living in Jesus's love. He left the mountain of heaven and came to us. And there's simply nothing like Jesus's love for us. Did you know Jesus' love never changes? No matter how good your relationship is with another human, it probably vibrates at least a little. It probably at least shakes just a little. It probably goes up and down, maybe a lot. Jesus' love never runs out. Jesus' love, you can't earn it. Jesus' love, you can't deserve it. And because you can't earn it or deserve it, you can't lose it. It's tough to find a love like that. And the most intoxicating part about Jesus' love is, get this, Jesus knows every single thing about you. So Jesus knows every lie, every sin, every worst moment of your life. And instead of shying away from you, he keeps coming towards you. That's a love that if you abide in, will burn a fire of joy deep down in your soul. A mist cannot do it, but the mountain of God's love, you can mine forever and you will pump joy out of it. It will be like oil raining on you of the joy of God as you start to plumb the depths of this God who loves me apart from what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And that's how can this be? It's a holy God who comes, who loves us, a sinful people, and he fills us with joy. How can it all be? How can God do it? Well. That's the next part of what Simeon says. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them, and this time he just looks at Mary. 
and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Jesus is going to reveal what people trust in. If you trust in God for joy, you're going to love Jesus. All the promises are coming true. If you trust in anything else, you're probably not going to like Jesus because he's saying your, your mountain doesn't work. That's a consistent message of Jesus and Luke is joy and love and redemption are found in me and nothing else. Pointing many for their rise and fall. And look what it says next. For a sign that is opposed. Wait a minute, Jesus will be opposed. People are greeting him with joy. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. It's a cryptic line. And he's using a metaphor to tell Mary that one day her heart will be pierced in great sorrow and suffering. That in all the joy and excitement of this birth, and people are just celebrating and celebrating and lifting him up and celebrating this Jesus, born in a humble way to a poor family in a manger, but celebrated that one day the cheers will turn to booze. He's pointing that one day nails will pierce this baby boy's grown hands and feet and he'll be hung on a cross and Mary will have to watch. This boy that everyone loved, this gift of the centuries, the gift of all time, will be pinned to a cross that there's a sword of suffering coming that's going to literally rip her heart out. We're told in the Gospel of John, she's one of the few people who's even there. All the disciples run, except John the youngest and the three Marys, including his mom, are the only one who actually see Jesus die. And Simeon is preparing her, but it's also teaching us that to realize this gospel of how does God love sinners, it's because God dies for sinners' sins and brings us home. That the gospel is to know both joy and sorrow. That to know the crazy, ecstatic joy of God is to see clearly the story. That Jesus doesn't die for his sins and his crimes, but ours. That the same people who cheered him one day will boo him. And that's the point. That Jesus is really dying for sinners. That the cross of Jesus brings tremendous sorrow for Mary, and it's a sorrowful thing to see God die, but it's also the reason for our joy. That Jesus came not to judge us, but to forgive us for our sins by this cross. If we fail to connect Christmas to the cross, we will always have an infantile Christianity. Your faith will stay a a, a baby faith as long as you don't make room to see how baby Jesus is on a death march for 33 years to the cross. He is the baby born to die. Then every scene of Luke 1, you start to have this ominous feeling that things aren't going to go the storybook way. But rather the deeper story, the stories of all stories, God himself will suffer before the glory of his resurrection. But that cross is real, as real as your sins. As real as my sins. As real as the worst parts about us that God already knows. That's why he goes to the cross. 
and why he can welcome you home to say sinners find forgiveness and healing in Jesus because God's paid in blood for them. Jesus pays in blood for our sins because of what Hebrews 12 says. That Jesus' motivating thing in Hebrews 12, it says, he endures the cross for the joy set before Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Joy's motivating Jesus too? Yes. And do you know what it goes on to describe his joy as? To be with God and you forever. The joy that's set before Jesus is that we would all dwell in the city of God one day, what we call heaven, that one day he would be with his people and he would love us and experience no more sorrow, but a forever joy. That's what it means to follow him on to eternity, is that you know your joy is secure in heaven, even as we walk in what can be a sorrowful earth. There are no sorrows that Jesus doesn't know. There is no hurt he can't draw near to you with. He's called in Isaiah, the man of sorrows, but he's also the bringer of joy. He's this beautiful paradox that gets whatever it is you are going through. Joy is not on the mountain of this world, but joy is found in Jesus's love. And one day you will have joy in full in his kingdom. And this joy isn't a maybe. It's not sentimental thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's guaranteed in Christ. Listen to Anna's word. She's 84 years old here. You're going to meet her in heaven. She's 84 and she is dancing and singing and she hints that things are actually a little bit bigger than even how Simon is talking or Simeon is talking. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years from when she was a virgin. So she was married for seven years. And then she's lived as a widow now that she's 84. That's a cool 60 years of widowhood. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. She's worshiping. That's why we worship. People of God worship their God. And to speak of him, the child, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna gave up hope in a worldly life a long time ago. She exchanged her worldly mountain of joy for a joy in God many years ago. The world would say, oh my gosh, she lost everything. Where, where are her children? I mean, she has a husband in all, all of these years. And now look, she's nearing the end of her life. But I don't think Anna would say she lost in life. I don't think Anna would, well, she'd be like, what are you talking about? Because Anna said her hope and joy in God in church, she wasn't disappointed. If you set your joy and hope on God, guess what? I know the conclusion you won't be disappointed. There's a lot of myths that disappoint. The Messiah ain't one of them. She found something more precious than even what we think are the most precious things in life, like family, 
She finds Jesus. And when that baby walks in, she immediately starts shouting. She starts teaching. She starts telling everyone of her redemption. Salvation is here. She set her joy on God. And even in her sorrow, she wasn't disappointed. But look at what she exactly says. She exactly says, for the redemption of Jerusalem. She recognizes Jesus as the Savior the purpose of Jesus' first arrival. His purpose will be the cross. He lives a perfect life. He proves he's God. But the purpose is that he would die for our sins on the cross and then rise again. That's arrival one. But she hints at revival two, or arrival two. It's meant to be a revival two, but arrival two is this baby is actually Jesus the king who's coming again, not just to redeem hearts, but to redeem the entire earth, Jerusalem and every broken thing included. That one day this baby will come back as the resurrected king of eternity and he will be both savior and king. And every broken thing in place will be redeemed. The scriptures say the rocks will cry out. The scriptures say the trees will bow down, rivers will clap their hands, mountains will fall, and all things shall worship the Lord God. Even those who don't believe will bend a knee to Jesus. There will be no more dispute who is king. She is seeing deep in the future that this is the Savior and King. And Jesus makes a promise in John 16 that alludes to this very fact, that his resurrection and return is tied directly to our joy right now. That Anna's right. Look at John 16 with me. It says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He promises this to the disciples first, that he's literally going to die. They're going to have a separation from him, and then he'll resurrect and return. But now his words speak to us, because right now you do have sorrow. The world is not as it should be. Things are broken. Jesus is not here reigning as a bodily king. The story is simply not over. We have sorrow mingled with our joy, but Jesus promises you will see him one day soon. That means Jesus's return means no one can steal your joy. No one. There's so much in this world that makes you cry. Scroll the news. It's it's a rough place. But remember, one day we are actually going to laugh in joy with God. Not just mildly happy or surprised, but the greatest fulfillment of your life lies ahead. Just as Jesus could endure the cross because of the joy set ahead, we can endure this life because we have joy set ahead with God. That we have a piece of it now, but it's a piece that's pulling us forward in our life. No one is allowed to steal your joy from Jesus. So don't let them. When people at work, when a bad manager, when a gossipy coworker steals your joy, don't let them. That you have a joy that's not based on circumstance, but based on Christ. 
that your joy isn't based on how people treat you or if things go your way, but you have a joy based on someone who rose from the dead and is coming back. That you have a joy that's unshakable. You have a joy that's unbreakable. You have a joy that's like nothing else in this world. That no mountain can offer you what Jesus has come and delivered to you. And it gets better. The true joy is based on Christ, not our circumstances. Because Christ never changes and his love never stops and his joy is not amiss, it becomes a fire in our heart. That's why in the prophets, Nehemiah can say, the joy of the Lord is his strength. Your strength for tomorrow lies in Jesus' love for you today. Jesus' joy is enough to get you through the darkest and hardest of time by knowing that God smiles on your soul, which means our joy is not wishful thinking, but wise. It's not sentimentality. It's not wishful thinking. The Christians are the most serious of people. We're seriously considering life and death. People try not to ever think about those things. We always think about those things. We're the people who care about orphans and widows, heaven and hell, purpose and life, and we find real conviction in God's word. But our seriousness about life leads us to the wild joy of God that invites us to a strange life in a strange world. That we're people who can go and mourn fully at a funeral, yet have our hope on God that death is not the end. That we're the people who can cry the most and then laugh the hardest at the reception. That's a strange life. It's a strange life to be actively praying and hoping for the end of the world because the end of the world is when Jesus comes back. That's a different way to live. That we can be the most serious people who don't actually take ourselves all that seriously. That my life isn't about getting all the answers right. That my life isn't about knowing more than our person. It's not about getting everyone's respect. It's not about having to be loved and approved of by everybody. That my life isn't about my moral perfection either. Because my life, my joy is actually based on Jesus, not me. And that's a wild joy that makes you a strange person, but it's wise because if Jesus's joy is real, I should bet all of my life on it. And I can put down my backpack and just get off the mountain. What's stealing your joy is trying to climb a mountain that's leading to an empty promise anyway. It's okay to have goals, good godly goals based in biblical conviction but don't think your joy lives there. Actually, finding your joy in God will help you enjoy those moments even more. My kid's birthday doesn't have to fulfill me. I can just enjoy it for what it is. My wife's love doesn't have to fulfill me. I can just enjoy it for what it is. Some great achievement. It doesn't have to fulfill me. I'm not leaning my soul on it. I can just enjoy it for what it is. Jesus's joy actually frees you to be more joyful in your actual goals and accomplishments instead of crushed if they don't work or disappointed when they do. If you want your heart to be free, lean all of your hope on Jesus. Everyone chases joy, but joy is elusive in this world. And frankly, joy, the world cannot give you the joy you actually seek. 
you were made for more, more joy, more peace, more love, a beauty that can only be given through Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't require any mountain climbing, but he does require a surrender of your life, a surrender of your mountain climbing ways to follow him instead. To follow after Jesus is surrender, but it's a surrender to the joy you've always been looking for.